You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to a special Middle East Analysis Extra. Now this is going to take on the tone far more of our our usual Middle East Analysis podcast, which is to take a look around the Middle East North Africa region with our good friend, Dr. Harry Hagopian. You're on the line. I can't see you again as per our previous podcast, but I know you are there. How are you? Yes, I'm here, James. Uh, Thank you. I'm fine. And I'm trying quite hard to get used to this impersonal way of communicating with you. Yes, personal, impersonal. We're trying, aren't we? I'm, I'm picturing I'm picturing your face, which is a good thing. We are trying, yeah. Now, last time, Harry, I need not remind you that we had a walloping, and I think for you and probably our listeners, rather exhausting one-hour podcast on the potential Israeli annexation of lands in um, the West Bank, Palestine. That was exhausting, wasn't it? That was more than exhausting, uh, James. That was draining. In fact, in one of my social media posts, I said that after we'd done the recording one hour plus, I went and had to gargle my throat with some TCP in order to soothe it a bit because the vocal cords had become a bit tired. Well, look, we're, we're all learning, aren't we? And I think these platforms, these these sort of ways of communicating during the COVID-19 lockdown or easing of the lockdown is, is a challenge for all of us. But the challenge for you that I'm going to throw out there today, Harry, mm-hmm. we're going to look at three topics. We're going to look at the embargo on Qatar because that's recently passed uh, its three-year anniversary on the 5th of June. We're going to look at what I would have to say is the rather desperate situation in Libya. So we're heading into North Africa. And then we're going to scoot back around to Syria because we haven't spoken about Syria in many, many moons. And we started talking about Syria practically a decade ago. So your challenge, should you wish to accept it, this sounds a bit like Mission Impossible, doesn't it? Is to somehow stick to a maximum of 10 minutes per reality. How does that sound? That sounds very unreal, and uh, <laughs> I, I will do my best to subscribe to those 10 minutes because I'm very conscious of how much time we spent last time. And the only addition I would make to what you just said, James, is that when you come to the question or questions during those 10 minutes for Syria, it is inevitable that Syria and Lebanon go hand in hand together. So we'd have to talk a little bit about the situation in both countries, which is basically quite bad. No, of course. And I thought possibly we might have even touched upon it when we talked about Israel-Palestine. So many of these countries and neighbours, you know, the, the actions of one directly impact on another, don't they? Absolutely. Okay, well, let's start with the embargo on Qatar. And I will try not to butt in too many times. We'll we'll leave this to you. Now, what is sometimes also called the blockade, this started in June 2017. It's hard to believe it's been three years. And of course, when we, we want to show some brevity here, so we don't need to go back into the history fully. But I thought this would have been at an end by now. And we've had a few false dawns, haven't we? But it's it's still going on. What is the situation? It is still going on. And it is unfortunate because you're absolutely right. A lot of people thought that this was a spat between Gulf countries and that it would be resolved. A lot of People thought that the United States, as well as other countries like Kuwait, would come to apply pressure on all sides in order to speak, to talk, and to resolve their differences. But unfortunately, it hasn't 
happened and what the consequence of the result has been that one organization, the Gulf Cooperation Council, which includes six uh, Arab uh, Gulf states, uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, the Sultanate of Oman, Kuwait and uh, Bahrain, those six countries, this organization, the GCC, was in my opinion one of the few functional, viable organizations within the Arab world. And because of this embargo, this blockade by three of them, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, in addition to Egypt against Qatar, the whole organization's ethos, its efficacy, its fruitfulness has been put in question. And uh, and I find that, to be honest with you, if I were an Arab living in the region, I would find that unforgivable no matter which way it is spun out. It is rather confusing. And I, when I was reading up on it, trying to catch up actually over, over the years, suddenly thought to myself, well, is this cynical? But we have the World Cup in 2022. And despite certain quite quiet calls, actually, for a change in, in host, I believe that will go ahead, COVID-19 permitting. Is it cynical to say that maybe the end is in sight because, you know, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, of course, you know, strong team in North Africa. Bahrain actually has a football team that the the chances are they'll all want to compete and maybe that might defrost this problem. I think that might help defrost the uh, problem. You're absolutely right when you say that uh, they wanted to take the World Cup away from Qatar. But actually, for those of people who've actually, who are listening to us now and who've been to Qatar, they would notice the enormous uh, headway that Qatar has made in preparation for World Cup 2022. And in a sense, uh, those countries, whether they're boycotting countries or other countries, they will actually come and play because it's a world event and no matter their own megalomania, they're not going to pass on this occasion. But it really still makes me sad to realize that I come back to the same thing, having often said that the Arab League, which includes 22 Arab member states, is pretty much in torpor, that it just wakes up, says a few words, and then goes back to sleep. I've always said that the GCC, because it had the money, because it had the uh, oil, because the rulers were young rulers. If you look at the countries, I mean, bar Saudi Arabia, uh, the two, three of the countries have very young uh, rulers at the helm. So I would have thought that put all this together uh, and the opportunities were immense for the Arab world to basically go out of its uh, narrow straits and into something more creative. And then this happened. And of course, uh, uh, I disagreed with it and I've spoken about it. I've written about it. And I think it is sad and it is wrong that uh, we are where we are. Now, will it be resolved? I hope so. There have been mediation efforts by the Kuwaitis since day one. In fact, their mediation prevented the situation getting worse. And then there have been the Americans, there have been some European countries, but Europe doesn't have much clout these days anymore anyway. And of course, people are looking at the United States, but the United States is run by a rather mercurial uh, president, and you never know from one day to another what he's going uh, to say. But at the end of the day, uh, James, all I would say is that 
there are issues of uh, justice, but the, which run through most of what I say anyway. But there are also issues where I dislike and I find objectionable when countries try to bully other countries by using their resources, their power, whether soft power or hard power, in order to make a country toe the line and do what they want that country to do. We're living in a global village where that doesn't work. Yes, globalization is there, but countries have the opportunity and the ability and must have the right and freedom to choose their own foreign policies and their own uh, domestic agendas. And whether it's the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia or whether, as we've seen in World War II with Germany and in other parts of the world in Vietnam, you cannot cow down a whole country and its people just because you find it objectionable what you do what they're doing and you think that it does not subscribe to your own national security well i'm sorry uh, qatar has its own mind and it in my opinion it can do what it wants and this is where I actually speak out because I'm neither defending or attacking those countries. All I'm saying is they have to have the right to do what they feel is best for their own country and suffer the benefits or the disadvantages of their actions. But you cannot force a country just because you don't like their policies to do it your own way. It's no longer a word of my way or the highway. This is what we've been talking about, you and I, for uh, 10 years now, about so many places in this large swathe we rather euphemistically call the MENA and Gulf region. Now, I know we've we've got about three minutes if we're sticking to our (laughs) 10 minutes per section. But, you know, let me ask you something that may on the face of it appear like a naive question. And I do know that and it tires me, actually, that a lot of people talk about oil being the primary factor. But if we talk about economics, how much of this is oil? How much of this on the other side is a country or state's right to choose the relationships it has with other countries because they're going to disagree with one another all the time aren't they these i mean i don't see what's going to if you like stop this embargo do do you have any idea what needs to happen from a perspective of economy negotiation relationship forming what what will bring an end to this in your view i think it is not only oil because oil is no longer the important resource today that was some 20 years ago when the Uh, Gulf states could actually turn off the tap and make life very difficult for everybody else. Some of us are old enough to remember the boycott that uh, King Faisal of Saudi Arabia did, which basically forced people to change their political lines. We're no longer there now. The price of the barrel of oil has come down. So that's not really it. That is only one component in the larger equation. What also matters here, and one of the differences between uh, the three boycotting and bargaining countries and Qatar, is a question of ideology and a question of whom do you support. One of the accusations leveled at the Qataris is that they actually support Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, and they supported the former president of Egypt, uh, Morsi. And this is something that the United Arab Emirates, certainly, and others as well, including Egypt, of course, have, uh, have actually militated against and find totally uh, objectionable. Well, I I disagree with that. I think that a country should have its own 
foreign policy and then you judge it on the merits and demerits of that policy. Now, jumping very quickly to whether this spat or this discord will be resolved, I think uh, it will be resolved when, and here I'm putting on my hat as a conflict resolution lawyer, uh, this will be resolved when it reaches a peak whereby it hurts everyone. And now it is beginning to hurt everyone. The Saudis are in an absolute mess in so many different ways. The crown prince of Saudi Arabia is as impulsive and unpredictable as the president of the USA. Uh, The Emiratis are running uh, a little bit out of money. And also from what we see in Yemen, what we see in in Libya, what we see in uh, other countries, their influence and their fingerprints are are not as perceptible and detectable as they were. So when it becomes a question where the Gulf countries, because the Gulf countries together are like a tribe, they're different tribes, but it is tribal thinking. When they feel that their own future, their own well-being, their own welfare and prosperity are being compromised, this is when they will sort of come together and say, okay, it's time to heal the rift. And of course, big superpowers like the United States, like Germany, like other countries could also help push them in that direction. However, I wouldn't want to see it happen at the expense of one country such as Qatar, because that will not be healing the rift, that will not be resolving the conflict, that will just be a question of papering over the cracks. And at the moment, there is a lot of talk about the Kuwaitis and the Omanis together, with a lot of help from the United States, pressuring those countries to come together and to settle their differences. Because at the end of the day, don't forget that this region is not only a region of oil, it's also a geostrategic region, particularly for the United uh, States. So will it happen? I hope so. It's just a question of bullying one country. No, that is not in my dictionary. Okay, Harry, well, let's move on now to Libya. We're all sliding to North Africa. It's a country very close to my heart, not because I've been there, but because I have a very dear friend who is half Libyan. Now, I often talk to my friend about this, but it, it's it's a great tragedy, isn't it? Because you look at the you look at Benghazi and you look at that wonderful cultural center with the sort of Italian European influence as well, yet its own unique Bedouin culture. And Libya now painfully seems to be a complete mess with, you know, lots of proxy conflicts, international actors all over the place here. And I've even read an article that, that, that its very title was um, rather depressing, The Great Carve-Up of Libya. I mean, what's going on at the moment, Harry? Because, you know, Khalifa Haftar's sort of year-long offensive on Tripoli appears to have been rebuffed. Uh, what is the situation in Libya now? Yeah, a couple of points there, uh, James, before I go to that. If you remember, and I'm sure you would remember if I sort of put you on the spot, but I shan't. In the past, when we've discussed Libya, you and I, I've always referred to it as an untouched Cyprus. Because it really is a beautiful uh, country with some beautiful sites and some history. And people don't know all this because it has not been open to tourism or to the outside world. And the other thing I would say is that your Libyan friend, you mentioned him to me many a time, but I actually haven't yet met him. Now, to keep this very simple and not to go into 
much detail because the devil is in the details, I agree. But I want to keep it very simple at this stage. It's again a proxy war. If I want to start with Gaddafi, Gaddafi was removed like other rulers of the MENA region and the North African region during the what was then known as the Arab Spring. Gaddafi had a very sort of unifying, centralized system of governance. He was everything. Things started with him and ended with him. He was the first word and he was the last word. And in a sense, when he was killed in that uh, awful way, no matter how bad a man he was or how good a man he was, nobody deserves being killed in that way. But he was killed. Uh, let's say it was the passions of the people at the time. And then you had a country without that centralizing influence. And then, of course, with all the diversities, with all the many, many myriad tribes in uh, Libya, on East and West Libya, things at the beginning were still within the spirit of, oh, this is the Arab Spring, let's get together, let's get our freedoms, etc. But there were no institutions, there was no infrastructure, there was nothing, there was just a Muammar Gaddafi there. And in a sense, when he was removed from the equation, gradually things started to go belly up. We in Europe tried, it is one of those times when the Americans led from the back or whatever, and the Europeans tried. I still remember President Sarkozy and Prime Minister David Cameron going there and giving a victory speech in Libya about how we liberated Libya uh, and how the future is going to be so rosy and so optimistic. Well, far from it, because what has happened since then, when you have a country whose centralizing figure is no longer there, whether that centralization is through repression or otherwise is not what I'm discussing here, then you have all those different tribes and different peoples and different ideologies and different mixes from the religious to the secular mixing up, then you sort of come to a situation when there is no homogeneity. And in that little disturbing and uh, unpacifying mix, you also had, of course, as you mentioned yourself, all different proxies coming in and trying to sniff what interests they could find in Libya in order to invest in or to usurp in some cases. So we had suddenly a few countries show that interest. You had the Emirates, you had Italy, you had all those countries. Now, what happened is that suddenly in the East, the country was divided and history actually lends credibility to this. The country gradually started getting divided into East and West. East is Benghazi, West is Tripoli. And in the East, a strong man who used to be a cohort of Gaddafi, who is an American citizen who lived in the States for long, Khalifa Hifter, he sort of started to be the strong man. And he was supported by all those countries like Egypt, like the United Arab Emirates, less so by the Saudis, a bit by the French increasingly, and increasingly more by the Russians, who wanted a very ideological, non-religious approach to Libya because they think that religion is one of the problems of the region, and they supported him. And at the beginning, he was moving forward, he was expanding his fiefdom, whereas the GNA, the what is known as the legitimate government in uh, Tripoli, was losing ground. 
This equation was quite critical because everybody expected Khalifa Hefter to end up uh, in uh, Tripoli itself, the capital, and he already, his forces were almost in the suburbs of Tripoli. But what happened was a game changer, and that game changer was that another Muslim ideologue, uh, the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, came and concluded an agreement with Faiz al-Sarraj, who is the head of the GNA or the legitimate government as the world recognized it in Tripoli. That really was a game changer because it wasn't only ink on paper. It was Turkey in a major way helping militarily the forces of Faiz al-Sarraj and the Libyan forces on that side of the equation to counterattack Hifter. And what has happened in the last month or so is that they have actually moved forward quite substantially. They have freed the suburbs of uh, uh, Tripoli from Hifter's forces, and they are moving forward and they are demining also as they go along. And the whole point here is very simple, really. Forget the details. Let our listeners not get bogged down to who is Hefter, who is Sarraj, which direction is this going, what is Sirt, what is what. Forget all that. You had a clash of two ideologies, one premised on Islam and the other one a secular ideology, and both sides had their supporters, and now they've come openly supporting both sides. However, the recent defeats of Hefter are because the people who are supporting him, particularly the Russians, started taking a slightly more neutral approach to the conflict, and that impacted the military readiness of Khalifa Hefter. In Libya, what needs to be done is for the two sides to sit together, to have their heads knocked together, to go back to the Sherat Agreement, to go back to the agreements that have already been discussed and talked about in order to find a way to live together. But this idea of having somebody, a strongman, a retired general from the East coming and taking over Tripoli is not going to work. And in my opinion, the counteroffensive from Tripoli into the East will not on its own work. Why? Because this is no longer, like much of the Arab world, this is no longer an Arab issue. This is an international issue where all the powers are sort of exercising their influence. And the only way to do it is for the Libyans themselves to wake up and to say, listen, they're all taking pieces of our country for their own interests. Why don't we do something that is good for Libya? And that is to come to an agreement whereby we establish the institutions that would lead to a system of governance that is for the benefit of the people. So that those Libyans who are abroad will not say, what, go back to Libya, to that jungle? You must be joking. I've been told this by so many Libyans when I discuss this in think tanks and in other fora. That, to me, is basically the bottom line. Forget the details. Just think of two warring parties, both of them Libyan, each one of them having a totally paradoxical viewpoint politically from the other, to start and realize that this is our country. Let us 
fight for the country rather than fight against each other because we have such different ideologies and in so doing establish a front against outside incursions rather than being the catalysts who would facilitate the incursion. But I mean, there are such silly things. There is a parliament which is the legitimate parliament. There is the Tobruk parliament, which is the counter parliament. There is now that Khalifa Hifter has been in some way compromised because he's now being viewed as a failure, as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. There are other people like Aguila Saleh and others who are coming up as heirs and successors to him. All this is fine, but I have a very simple, naive attitude that perhaps uh, doesn't fit with everybody's understanding of international politics and diplomacy, which is, look, yeah, all this is fine. But as I just said to our listeners, think of the country before you start playing games with people from outside the country who are not interested in the interest of the country. They're interested in their own countries. That is colonialism time and again. And colonialism is not only a physical presence, it's also a state of mind. Absolutely. Well, I'd certainly value us doing a specific Middle East analysis on Libya uh, when we can, Harry, because there's so much to talk about, not not least the place of women. I, I read a very interesting article about uh, women's entrepreneurship, not very well supported, but, but very Absolutely. dynamic. Absolutely. That would be fascinating. And, and again, to examine a little bit more what it's like on the ground. So if you could indulge me that in the future, I'd, I'd certainly be grateful. Well, Harry, we hurtle onwards to Syria. And as you made that sort of indelible connection with Lebanon as well, let's talk about Syria. How many times have we spoken about Syria over the last 10 years? I mean, more than I can remember, if I'm honest. I will have to confess at this point to being a little bit behind the times. I, I used to very, very much stay abreast. Of perish the thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that means, I think you know what I'm saying in a long-winded way. What I'm saying, Harry, is over to you to update us on what's going on and to take your specific angle on it. Okay, I'm going to take a specific angle, which is the human and humanitarian angle, and then perhaps wrap it up with a couple of political prognostications That's all I want to do today with uh, Syria and as I also append Lebanon to the Syrian question. Uh, In the 1970s, uh, James, and I was just out of diapers then, in the 1970s, one dollar, one US dollar was worth four Syrian liras. In 2011, when the Arab Spring started, the dollar shot up from 4 Syrian liras to the dollar to 50 Syrian liras. In 2018, that is another seven years later, so we did a jump from the 70s to 2011. That's quite a jump from 4 to 50 for the dollar. Then from 2011 to 2018, the dollar shot up from 50 Syrian liras to 500 Syrian liras. In 2020, two years later, that shot up to almost today 4,000 Syrian liras to the dollar. It started with four in 1970, then 50, then 500, then 3,000, and now 4,000 almost. And every day, As people are talking, as you and I are discussing this, the Syrian lira drops versus the dollar. Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this for a very simple reason. It shows that 
people are actually unable to afford anything. The stories I've heard, personally, stories I've heard in Arabic from people residents of the country is that they cannot afford to eat, they cannot afford to do anything because it is really completely gone off the charts, off the table. And this is why, in my opinion, when you go to the vegetable market to buy just a parcel of bread, you have to pay 500 Syrian liras. You want some eggplants, 350. You want some tomatoes, 450. Now, for you and I, living in the comfort of the UK, no matter our own wobbles, this looks like, oh, come on. Yeah, but for people there who don't have the money or who earn the money in Syrian liras or pounds and the prices are pegged to the dollar, they can't afford it. Some people were telling me that they are actually working a whole month to get their salary in Syrian pounds. At the end of the day, if you convert it to dollars, it comes down to $5 a month. That is two pounds, two UK pounds. So when you take this, you will suddenly realize why is it that we have problems now in Syria, which are different from the problems that you and I have spoken about at some length over many, many years, and from where or where from came the, this amusing expression that you and I use that I'm not a prophet. The difference is very simple. You have an economy in total meltdown in Syria. You have a spat between the ruling Alawite family, the dynasty. You have Bashar al-Assad and his wife versus the economic tsar of Syria for many, many years. He used to basically be the one who did the accounts for the whole uh, dynasty, and therefore by dynasty I mean the country, and that is uh, Rami Makhlouf. And now when you look at those dynasties, who are the people who are controlling, who have been controlling uh, the Syrian economy and the Syrian wealth? And by controlling, I mean purloining. And purloining is a very polite way for me to say stealing. So who are these people? They are the Dabaghs, the Makhloufs, the Akhrasas, the Assads. These are the people who are actually been benefiting and their wealth is in the millions and millions. If you look at the uh, sons of those people living in Europe, by the way, or in the States, they don't live in Syria because it's too poor for them. The Ferraris and the wealth they have is unimaginable. So you have a spat now, tensions are growing between the family as to how they will divide this pot of money. That's the second thing. So there is the economic meltdown, which is also leading to a lot of serious fractions and splits within uh, the family. And when a family in the tribal, in the larger sense of the word, is fractured, that is when things get uh, very serious indeed. Then you have Russia which came into Syria in 2015 when all things looked like doomsday and it thinks that it basically provided safety for Bashar al-Assad and his people and is now asking for repayment. 
repayment by in money, repayment in influence in the country, repayment in having patches of ports or land on the coastal area of uh, Syria in places like Latakia, etc. So that is also adding the pressure of having a new colonialist attitude coming into Syria, which is Russia, next to another one, which is Iran, which has been there fighting for Bashar al-Assad against the people of Syria who rose up in 2010-2011 asking for freedom, asking for something so simple and yet so hard to get in Syria and in much of the Arab world, and that is human dignity. So you put all these things together, and what do we get? The family spats, which are very, very dangerous and ever-widening, the financial fluctuations and economy that is in meltdown, the Russians that are pushing in one direction, a tug of war, the Iranians who are unhappy, uh, Bashar al-Assad, who's desperately him and his family clinging uh, to power, the people, their progeny who are abroad having the life of Riley, while the people are earning $5 a month after working a whole month. All this is is leading to more insurrections, more violence, and now we are beginning to see new protests. But unlike the protests that we, you and I, talked about, whether institutionally or personally, over many years, which were led by this idea of justice, this idea of human dignity, this idea of freedom, this idea of freedom of expression, of being able to do what they want without being spied upon, the fact that you do not need to be in prison, thrown in prison, particularly today in COVID times, just because you disagree with what the omnipotent ruler says. And at the moment, it is a pretty much incompetent, omnipotent ruler in the name of uh, Bashar al-Assad. All these things were happening then. Now the situation has changed. Now it's not a revolution building up gradually for lofty ideals like we understand them. It is because it's called in Arabic Thawratul Jiyah, which means Thawratul Jiyah means the revolution of the hungry. People are going hungry. People do not have food to eat. And when we get to that stage, then we can see why there are so many revolutions already, many revolutions, many insurrections, many protests, many riots, tentatively, because the regime has come so hard on the people that they're all, those who still remain in the country are traumatized. But we can see things happening in Sweda, even places like Tartus, near Latakia on the west coast. We can see places like Tafas near Dara in the south alongside the Jordanian border. All these places are beginning to say, no, 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 no. Listen, justice, human dignity, human rights, fundamental freedoms. Okay, if you bang us on the head, we'll just have to kneel down and do without but we can't do without eating. We can't go and afford 500 Syrian liras for a pack of uh, bread. This is where we are, and this is why, at the moment, the tensions are mounting up, and there are lots and lots and lots of discussions happening because Syria is divided, as I've told you once before. Also, you've got the central authority, so-called the regime with Bashar al-Assad and his cronies. But then you have Russia. We talked about Russia. You have Iran. We talked about Iran. You have 
Turkey, which is now playing a huge role, particularly in Idlib, which is a large swathe within Syria. Then you have the Americans who still have a, a presence there. And it seems to me that as the people get more restive, there are more and more negotiations between the Americans and the Russians to start seriously thinking about what is going to be the post-Bashar Assad era like. And here I throw in one key issue that I will hopefully be discussing also on my own YouTube intuitive reactions with a political analyst and an academic next week, is the Caesar law. What is Caesar's law? Caesar's law is an American-U.S. law that was enacted and signed by President Trump, which basically punishes the regime, the people working with the regime inside the country and outside the country economically. And this is part of the reason why Syria is at such an uncertain stage, because if this were implemented properly, and implementation is mid-June, I think the 17th of June, if this kicks in, then it's going to even make the economic situation worse. Put all this together, what do you get? You get a situation where the revolution of the Hungary would actually conceivably lead to a political change. You look next door to Lebanon, what do you see? You see that Syria was using Lebanon as a way of laundering or whitewashing its currency, its money. Now that is not happening either because Lebanon itself is in a very, very bad shape. The IMF wants to help, but the IMF has its own conditions for structural reforms. And the warlords in Lebanon who run the country haven't yet realized that if they don't accept to change their ways and go away from the idea of confessionalism and sectarianism and adopt citizenship, remember that word? Citizenship as the, as the key word for governance, they're all going to be swept aside and there will be no Lebanon the way we know it. James, every year Lebanon spends $2 billion on electricity and it doesn't have electricity to supply. There are blackouts across the country. The debt of the country is 150% of its GDP. The country is in a bad shape. So Syria cannot rely on Lebanon as its outlet, as its lung. Therefore, you look at Syria, you look at Lebanon, and you realize that it's very, very bad. And in the case of Lebanon, and I suppose also in the case of Syria, but certainly in the case of Lebanon, the shift in order for the donor agencies and the world to help Lebanon float up and not sink down is to use its human resources, which are fantastic, and to get away from this rentier economy that has been strangling the country, suffocating the country into a more productive economy. This is where we are with these two countries. So I wouldn't be surprised, perhaps much to your surprise and mine, but I wouldn't be so surprised nowadays if suddenly I see serious changes. I wouldn't use the word cataclysmic because we've used it before and I've been wrong. But serious changes might be forthcoming. And who knows, maybe it's the money 
rather than the principles that will make us see a change in the regime in Syria. Well, I mean, serious changes are without a doubt needed, but this is a bit of a purification in the flames. It's obviously going to hurt the people before it gets better for them. Isn't that always the way? And also it makes me think of that that phrase often said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've talked about a couple of... uh, figureheads in countries that have have behaved in that fashion. So, Harry, you do know that we've probably taken about 12 and a half minutes per reality. Now, that it could have been could have been longer. You've done well. Give me a break. I've behaved. You have behaved and I haven't even interrupted you that much. No, you haven't. And some people, you know, some people, what they enjoy about our MEA programs, uh, James, is not only the fact that we try to put in some Uh, details and some out-of-the-box or blue-sky thinking or whatever, because that's I I like to be countercultural, and you reminded me of that off-mic today, (laughs) but also because they enjoy our banter. And you've been so good that you haven't even bantered, if there is such a verb, in order to make sure that I say my piece and we finish before it becomes another uh, whopping big uh, podcast. Well, just over 40 minutes, 12 and a half minutes of reality. I've got some clear clips I can take from that to keep it even more simplistic for our listeners. So if you want the lot, you can have the lot. If you want the clips of of each reality we've spoken about in the Middle East and North Africa today, then you can have that as well. Harry, I hope it's not going to be too long before we do this again in our new sharp, succinct fashion, if we can say that about 40 I need to catch my breath, James, and as I'm sure you are. And let me say this again. I said it off mic. I'll say it on mic. You are really going out of your way to do this with me. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. And a big thank you to you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Harry. I've enjoyed it. I hope our listeners will enjoy it. And maybe they'll cut us a wee bit of slack because we're we're sort of learning in this new reality as well. Until we meet in July, who knows? Maybe we'll discuss a new Syria then. I hope it's a more <laughs> positive one. Harry, thank you ever so much. My and take pleasure. Care.